You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. Morning, Christ's Covenant Church. Man, there's something familiar about that. And uh, so glad to be here with you uh, after a number of years away. Um, we are just really considered a privilege to open God's Word with you. And uh, I have the privilege of speaking in a number of churches uh, in America and in other countries. And yet there's something different about coming back to Christ's covenant. Uh, it reminds us of the years that we spent together. So just just uh, great to be here with you this morning. And um, I always get that feeling like, oh man, Christ's covenant, they, this probably is not going to be a new passage. And it's partly because I remember when we went through a series in Acts. And so I'm starting to think like, this is not one of those messages that's new, but sometimes we just need reminded of God's Word, right? And a very familiar passage, we just need reminded and impressed again by God's Word. And so that's been my prayer for us in our time together is, Lord, would you come and just impress us with your Word this morning? So turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 1, and we're going to look at a very familiar passage, and, and then we're going to maybe do something a little bit unusual as we scan throughout the rest of the book of Acts. So you'll want your own paper copy if you have one, or electronic copy, as I some pe- see some people uh, doing that, and so that you can scan with us as we chase this idea down through the book of Acts. Let me just set the scene. It had to have been something else as the disciples and the hundreds who had begun following Jesus approached uh, Jerusalem and they're thinking this is the time and they start almost sort of revolt like language as they say Hosanna and they're making a stir and a fuss in Jerusalem and perhaps a rebellion is brewing and Things are starting to stir in that moment, and they're thinking, this is the moment. He's coming. It's Messiah. He's going to overthrow Rome, and perhaps we will establish him as our king. And there's palm branches, and all of that's happening, and it's exciting, and he's killed. And all their hopes and perhaps dreams are dashed, and it unfolds as he's betrayed. And he's falsely accused. And he's wrongfully arrested. And his secret illegal trial goes on. And then there's this horrid torture. And death. And then maybe for some, the guilt of personal failures as they abandoned the very person that they were following. And then he rises from the dead. And I just wonder if they're just like, What is going to happen now? You know, I mean, I think they just had to have been excited. And he tells them, stay in Jerusalem, which would have maybe been hard. Lack of clarity, hope and anticipation mixed with, man, am I going to get it? Because I totally messed this up already. I denied Jesus. Some of them are thinking, perhaps, what's going to happen? Unsure, maybe, at least, at least unsure. And we see that in their voice, at least in their question in verse 6. So look at this. Acts 1 verse 6 says, So then, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? That gives you a snapshot of what they're thinking about. They're trying to figure out the plan. What is the plan? Up until now, they probably were thinking this is the plan. So they're like, Jesus, is this 
is, is it now? And he says in verse 7, no, um, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed on his own authority. But he gives them a heads up. And I want to read this verse 8 to you. And I want to suggest to you that this is probably a prophecy in some senses. Jesus is explaining what's about to happen. That's what verse 8 is. He is explaining, hey, let me tell you six steps, six things of what is going to happen next. So this is a prophecy. I see it this way. Uh, sixfold. Look at the first thing, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Did you catch it? Did you count the six? Count with me. Look back at them. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Number two. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And you will be my witnesses in Judea. And you'll be my witnesses in Samaria. And you'll be my witnesses to the end of the earth. He tells them six prophecies. Listen, you know, what we're going to do is just scan through Acts and see God's word fulfilled and his mission advanced. So here's the first one. You'll receive power. That's what Jesus says to them. But think about it. In verse 2, we'd almost have to do this out of order, right? Because the Holy Spirit comes and that's when they receive the power. So we're going we're gonna to jump on the PowerPoint here. But you receive the Holy Spirit. And look at, look at chapter 2. The Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost here in this day. And the Holy Spirit does come. But it doesn't just come to the disciples. It's poured out on everyone. And it, this is unprecedented. Up until now, the Holy Spirit had worked up until the whole Old Testament. The Holy Spirit had come. It's not that he was just sort of not present. He just hadn't worked in the same way that he's going to work from here on out. He empowered prophets to come to Israel and say, no, this is not the way. This is the way. And he had come to um, uh, kings and to lead. And he'd come to men to lead into battle. And he'd come to women. And he'd come to different and empowered them. Different men and women to certain tasks. And they accomplished those tasks. And then he didn't permanently indwell these men and women Moses even says in Numbers, oh, I wish that you could all receive the Spirit and prophesy. Numbers eleven twenty nine. But now, this is what happens. His Holy Spirit had come, and as we read the rest of the New Testament, we find out that He comes permanently, and He comes and indwells in the heart of every believer at salvation. And that's what the rest of the New Testament informs us of what happens here. And it wasn't just for the professionals, nor just an elite few. This is something God places as his mark and his seal of his own. And it's an exciting time, but God's word is fulfilled and his mission advances. So we'd back up to number, number one here in our order. Um, and that is that you will receive power. What, what type of power is this? I think sometimes we look at chapter two and we see the outpouring of the spirit and we see certain things happening there and we think that must be it. I don't think that's necessarily it. Well, surely it would include it. But if we were to jump to chapter, the end of chapter 2, we see Peter, who 30, 40 days earlier is running and hiding. And some little girl says, ah, he's one of them. And he's like, no, not me. And he runs away like a coward. And now, in verse 18, Peter stands up. 
right? He's not running. He is now standing up and quoting Joel, and he's quoting Psalm, and he's just running with it. And he starts preaching, and hundreds and thousands come to know Christ in faith. And I think that is a power that we see. A guy who was afraid now has courage. And chapter 3 is beautiful. He starts preaching. And amazing, and some really unusual things happen. But look at verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, because it's preaching, is called the ruckus, and they bring him in for questioning. And he says, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, says to them, rulers, and he goes on to explain, eventually just says, you guys killed the author of life. And I love that the picture here is that here is a guy that was a failure and a coward at some points, now has the power. And the text is clear enough to say in chapter 3 and 4, in name the very people who were trying Jesus are now trying Peter. He's now arrested and thrown in jail and probably expected the same fate as his leader. I don't know why he wouldn't. And he just lets, doesn't hold back anything. He has no problem just speaking. And it's not, this is another really cool thing in verse 13 of, six, of chapter 3, or chapter 4. It's not that all of the sudden, they, they look at Peter and he just was eloquent. It's not that all of a sudden, he skipped seminary and he could just preach like Francis Chan or whoever. It's not that all of a sudden, he, he was still a hick from Nowhereville. Like, that's still who he was, but he had a boldness that he just didn't have before because literally now he has the Holy Spirit. In fact, that's what they notice about him, right, in verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter, they didn't see his brilliance or excellence or, or look at the words that he says. I, this is, no, they say, when they see his boldness of Peter and John and they perceive that they were, they notice, like, these guys are uneducated common men like nothing happened to them overnight except for the holy spirit came and empowered them to stand up and be just a witness of what happened they saw what happened and they told people about it and they quoted some verses in there and they were astonished and they recognized these are the guys that had been with jesus so something is happening here and so god's word jesus's word is fulfilled and his mission advances and they are witnesses in Jerusalem. They have courage. They're released from jail and said, don't ever do that again. And the next day, they just go out and do it again. Like, no problem. No qualms. And they're his witnesses in Jerusalem. And Jesus' word is fulfilled and his mission advanced. And the word gets around. And it gets around to the highest leaders of Jerusalem and the religious leaders of Jerusalem and the common people in Jerusalem. And everywhere in Jerusalem, there is a witness and a testimony of who Jesus really was and what really happened with him. And that happened, you guys. And as we trace through um, chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7, we see the Holy Spirit start to empower people courage courage to obey in chapter 5 verse 27 through 18 courage to have a different position than the rest of society courage for Stephen a deacon to stand up and give a amazing speech and we think like wait deacons aren't they like finances and chairs or something isn't that their ministry that 
We see these deacons praying and preaching, and there is no holding them back on this thing. And we see the Holy Spirit giving this level of courage to people and courage to even, and sadly, at the end of chapter 7, face death, as Stephen does. Courage to face prison in chapter 8, verse 1 through 3. Courage to lose everything as their houses are stripped from them and their possessions. And the courage to go on. And look at chapter 8, verse 1 through 4. Let's read this. And Saul approved his execution, speaking of Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered throughout the regions of, check it out, Judea and Samaria. Who was scattered? Well, it's going to tell you. Except the apostles. So we're talking about Christians, but not the apostles. This is just the church is now dispersed throughout Judea and Samaria, but not the apostles. Verse 2, devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him, which had to have been very courageous, I would imagine, because of the association now with the very person that was just executed. But Saul was ravishing the church and entering house after house. And he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Look at verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Remember, this isn't the disciples. This is the church, you guys. And I just imagine the same scene repeating. Can you imagine the disciples who were scattered? confused at best of at the crucifixion here this guy they had expected to be the leader is now killed and they're just thinking where's the plan god i thought this was the plan and what he's dead now and i can imagine as the church in jerusalem was growing and building momentum and growing and now they're just scattered i could imagine there's some who are going wait what Where's the plan, God? How are we just being torn apart and scattered? And yet this is the very thing then that God uses to fulfill this next prophecy is that now there's a witness in Judea and in all of Samaria. And it's not the disciples or apostles. It is the average church Christian person is going throughout, and they are being witnesses all over. And I would suggest to you guys that sometimes in your life, there are things that feel like, wait, God, what? How is this the plan, God? And yet he wants to take that very thing and do what you couldn't possibly imagine, what you never would have planned for. You wouldn't have planned it that way. You wouldn't have. And I'm I'm feeling this in my life, you guys. I'm sharing this with you. There's things that just wouldn't have planned it this way. God, what are you doing? And yet, they're the things that God is saying. No, actually, I have something different and maybe even bigger in mind here. Just rest in my plan. Just keep being faithful. Just do the things I've called you to do. Because my plan is bigger and it doesn't look like your plan. Well, Judea, just, just as background, is kind of the territory surrounding Jerusalem. It's kind of an area there. But it's referring to the Jewish people who live out in these, these more rural areas and small villages and towns. 
Uh, so they're ethnically the same, but geographically spread a little bit. And Samaria really isn't any further than Judea. It's not like it's the next step beyond there. It's actually kind of overlaps. But it's talking about ethnically different, geographically, about the same area as, as, um, as Judea. And God's prophecy is fulfilled and his mission is advancing. And then we have the statement, and to the end of the earth, right? And um, chapter 8, if we read on, we see Philip preaching to an Ethiopian eunuch who's then going to go back to North Africa, which to them is probably the end of the earth. I think that's probably what they're thinking. Not that I live at the end of the earth, but I can see it from here type of deal. And um, that's, that's what these little cluster of dots are all the way to North Africa. And then we see Paul and Barnabas later on. We see the church saying, I think it's time that we separate these men and send them to this job or this task or this mission. And after that one leads into another one, which leads into another one, which leads into another one and becomes his career. And they press and see the gospel moving up through Greece and all the way to Italy and perhaps even all the way to Spain. And that's what these dots and to them, this is getting to the ends of the world. But it's amazing how then history jumps and goes to these strange languages. Fast forward a few hundred years all the way into some crazy language like English that has evolved. And um, now it jumps the pond and now we have the little you are here thing. And then God used a lot of people in North America to head south to South America. And he used a lot of people in the west to head toward the east. And let me just tell you about this guy in South America. Because he doesn't necessarily look like us. But the question is, can I get a witness? This is a man who lives deep, deep in the jungle of South America and Brazil. He is from the Yanomami tribe. And he would have been there for hundreds, of, not him, but his people have been there isolated and cut off from the rest of the world for hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. Hundreds and hundreds. Of, we don't know how long, but he would have been there just living in the jungle, his own lifestyle, his own thing, appeasing demons and false gods and running and cowering and fear. A violent and vicious tribe that lives on warfare and revenge. Except for 50 years ago, a couple of families hiked for months to get up and to find them and moved their family and their children's and their babies there, cut a little airstrip out and started learning Yonomami. And there was no dictionary and there was no grammar book and they figured it out. And why did they paint themselves red and polka dotted and put parrot down feathers on their heads? And why do they do these things? There's no ethnogram like explaining all this stuff they had to figure it out and a whole 50 years pass a half a century now we can say this man has a witness because there is a Yonomami church and there are believers albeit small in the middle of thousands of Yonomami there are dozens of believers who are reading God's word some of it in their language they don't have all of it yet and we go, praise God. So let's, let's just survey, where are we in the rest of the world? Well, in his tribe, they're still very warlike. It's hard to be there. Missionaries end up just having to hide sometimes when tribal warfare breaks out and there's violence and bullets are flying and arrows are zipping. And it's still hard to live there. And right before we left Brazil, 
There was a guy I've known my whole life, Coy, and he just had to come out. He's been there 38 years in this tribe, and his nerves are shot, and he has to retire. He's just, he did it. He ran the whole time, worked really hard his whole life, raised all his children in that tribe. And it's amazing. And we look at them and just go, wow, that is incredible that God did that and sustained them and kept them there. Here is an interesting fact that really has only probably happened in the last 15 years. It's really amazing. Is that every country in the world now has a Jesus, uh, witness of Jesus Christ. That is exciting. I mean, it is thrilling to think that. Like my grandparents couldn't have said that. Um, so it's like a beachhead, right? In every country there's at least some that know and um, a sustainable witness. A church is there who can now start to work in their own country. But uh, it's really not that much when we realize there's only 290-some countries. What are countries? They're, they're just geopolitical divisions that were decided arbitrarily in war, right? Like we said, this is our land. We just killed the people that were there or fought with them till they gave up. And we said, okay, at this river and this arbitrary straight line here, uh, this is my land. Get off it. I own it now. That is now a country. But within that country, there may be dozens or hundreds of people groups of nations that are ethnically unique that might bear their own language. And we realize that it is way beyond 290. In fact, like it gets dicey on knowing how to divide it. Do we divide it by languages? Well, you and I both know we're not Irish, but we both speak English, supposedly. Um, we're not Australians. We're not British. So we understand that there's more to culture and identity than just language, although language is pretty important. And so the people who study these things, they, they, they're at this number here. They're saying there's about 6,500 people groups in the world. These are ethnically the same. These are people who would claim this is my ethnicity. I am Yanomami. I am Kashinawa. I am Ishkarayana. Whatever it might be, this, this is my people. I'm not like them. They are different. Um, and so where we're at globally is we'll say there's still 2,500 people groups who lack a witness. Meaning, sometimes we use the word unreached or least reached. And that would mean there's nobody there to tell them about Jesus, even if they wanted to. They don't have the Bible. They don't have even a known Christian to tell them. So we'd look around Warsaw, and when we're like, we say there's lots of lost people who need Jesus. But we wouldn't necessarily call them unreached because there is a witness here, right? That's what the church is. It's this massive billboard pointing the way to God, right? And so we'd say these 2,500 people groups still lack even a witness. But the low-hanging fruit, guys, have been taken, What's left is crowded, vast cities with millions and millions of people and not a witness. Like, where do you start in a place like that where it's a sea of people stacked up on top of each other? There are people in remote deserts who've learned to live with less water than what we could even imagine is possible. That's where they're left with no witness. There are dense jungles. I think of the Amazon just because of spending more than half my life in Brazil. But this actually is Indonesia, and there's people groups peppering Indonesia and Papua Indonesia and Papua New Guinea 
who have no witness of the gospel. And there are frozen wastelands, Siberia, Mongolia, Greenland, places that are hard to get to and hard to live and hard to stay. And for me, I would almost want to say impossible. Uh, I don't want to say that, but that's the way I'm feeling about frozen wastelands. Like Wisconsin? I mean, my goodness. Why do people live there? (laughs) Only for Jesus. Just saying. Restricted access. There's places you just can't even visit because you have an American passport. You're you're not even going to be able to get there. Hard to live there. Illegal to share Christ. How do we get in there? We've got to get creative. Um, And here's a phrase I love to say is that things have changed in the last 50 years. We used to say from the north to the south as far as missions, or we'd say from the west toward the east. But now mission is from everywhere to everywhere. And just listen to a, a Kenyan pastor, a church in Kenya, who has a vision of planting a church in every gateway city of the world. And they have 50 church plants happening right now. We're talking about Mumbai and uh, San Francisco and Sao Paulo and Hong Kong. This is an African church sending and funding their missionaries to plant churches around the world. We have Africans coming to America. We have Americans going to Africa. We have Brazilians in the Philippines. And we have Koreans in the Middle East. There are more Korean missionaries in the Middle East than American because it's just hard for us to even have access there. And we realize God is crisscrossing the world. And it seems and it feels for everyone who's studying this like it is accelerating. I mean, it's happening, you guys. It is absolutely amazing. There's still work to be done. But um, it, I just don't, it blows my mind. So check this out. The church still can be involved. Do you remember all the way through in the New Testament what we see is the church separating Paul and Barnabas and Silas and these guys and they're saying, the Holy Spirit saying, these men, let's send them out. Uh, And the church then prays for them and the church sends people to encourage them and the church uh, financially supports and enables and makes that possible. And we see other churches join in on that and that becomes sort of the, 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 the MO for the church for the rest of The New Testament is what we're seeing, and the church still does that as I was on staff here for eight years, and at some point, an opportunity arose, and it just felt right to our family, and we went to the elders, and the elders said, yeah, this seems right to us too, and we prayed about it, and we decided, and we talked with our life group, and our life group said, yeah, we see that, and then we left. We sold our house in Winona, and off we went, and you guys have prayed for us and sustained us and kept us there, and that's good and right, and I want to add another layer to that is that the church needs to receive as God is doing new things and crisscrossing and cross-pollinating the world, you need to partner and receive even those who have come here. Because here in Warsaw, Winona, when we've lived here, we met people from 15 different African nations here in this community who are living here. And we met people from South America and Asia and Europe. And I'm not sure how God is or why or how he's doing this, but it seems like he is bringing the nations to live among us. And perhaps God has a role for, for you to play beyond just sending people and praying for them. Maybe he has a role for you receiving people 
And I want to challenge you, maybe he has a role for you going too. And you think, oh no, I'm all set on my career to be X. Or I'm halfway through my career to do this. And maybe God says, no, I actually want you to go and plant a church somewhere. Maybe that's what God has for you. Maybe there's a teenager or a young person here who still has your whole life. And what if God wants to separate you and do that with your life? I have the privilege right now of training missionaries. Uh, oh man, I love it. Just teaching them God's word and teaching them how to handle God's word. And I love it. And I have half of my class are college graduates who had some other career. They said, okay, actually, nope, this is where I'm going. And I have a PhD chemistry professor who's like, yep, not it. Quit his job at the university. Is sitting here prepping to head to a tribe somewhere and it's just when I look at that from all across the country I just think wow God is moving and so when I sit here and look out at you guys like don't count yourself off that list all right and if you want to talk like hey get my email we'll talk about it and maybe your role doesn't move you anywhere except for off your off your couch you know engaging talking receiving people here in this community, supporting, praying, encouraging those who have gone. And so I want to challenge you and leave you with that, guys. It was never about the professionals doing it. And he used the disciples in amazing ways, and we're really grateful for that. But we right away see the church jumping to action. And we right away seeing God fulfilling his prophecies through not just the disciples, but through all people. And that same Holy Spirit that was poured out on them there is given to you as a seal. And yet same Holy Spirit can empower you to not stay silent when maybe you would have. And that same Holy Spirit can bring back to your memory verses and passages of Scripture for you to use at the right moment. And that same Holy Spirit uses these situations in your life. And you thought maybe you just got that job and you landed it. And how in the world did I get this job? And maybe God strategically placed you in that company to be a witness. Or you thought that was just a beautiful house and you moved into that neighborhood. But maybe God put you in that neighborhood to be a witness. Or maybe things didn't work out the way you thought they would and you actually downgraded from that neighborhood into this neighborhood. And maybe God is strategically going to use that for you to be a witness. Or maybe you lost your job and now you've got fantastic opportunities with people you never would have rubbed shoulders with before. Or you're sick and you're in a hospital and you never would have seen that coming. And it feels like a curse. And it is the broken curse of this world. I'm not saying Jesus gave you that cancer. I'm saying he will use that for amazing purposes. Don't miss out. Don't miss it. If you're plugged in to God's mission. And what we see at the end, guys, when we look at Revelation, there are people there from every tribe and every tongue and every language bowing before the throne and saying, worthy is the Lamb. And that's what he's doing. That's his goal. That's his cumulative end. That's what he's bringing all of space and time and history toward that one end. Are you going to jump in and engage in that?